Hello and welcome to The Down Ballot. I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. David Beard is on vacation this week, but I'm joined by two Down Ballot regulars, veteran Democratic operative Joe Sudbay and law professor Quinn Yeargain. So even though it's June of an odd-numbered year, every week Beard and I marvel at just how much election news there seems to be to cover. We really weren't sure when we first launched this podcast, it was a midterm year. And so now that we're in an off year, we were wondering, like, are we actually going to have stuff to talk about? But it turns out there is so much to talk about. Joe, I think I want to hand the reins over to you and let you lead us in this conversation today so that we could just jump right in. You know, I think every year is an election year. And it is. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why the down ballot is so critically important. And even if we're not actually looking at specific election days in 2023, of which there are plenty, we're learning so much information about what to expect in 2024. And really, there's a state that has become such a battleground. And the battleground within that state is the biggest county, Maricopa County, and the Board of Supervisors is in play, and it's the first time in a long time. Talk a little bit about that, David. Yeah, so Maricopa County Supervisor Bill Gates, who is a Republican, announced late last week that he would not seek re-election in 2024. And his reasons, well, he didn't exactly say that this was his reason for not running again, but the backdrop to him not running again is really, really terrible. He had been subjected to really extreme violent threats from the far right ever since the Maricopa board certified the results of the 2020 elections, which saw Joe Biden become the first Democratic presidential candidate to carry the county since Harry Truman all the way back in 1948. And the MAGA crazies simply couldn't handle that. And they ramped up extreme attacks on the entire board. Gates was one of their prime targets. And in 2022, during the midterms, he actually spent election day at an undisclosed location because of really legitimate fears to his safety. And this is a problem that we have seen play out across the country since the Trump era, these assaults on election supervisors. And really, it's an attempt to just undermine integrity in the election system entirely. And Maricopa has stood fast against that, even though the board is dominated by Republicans. They have said, screw off to the conspiracy theorists and have upheld the results that show Democrats winning. And what makes Gates's departure interesting on an electoral level is that it really could open the door to even more Democratic victories in Maricopa County. So Maricopa, it's an unusual place. It's home of Phoenix and also 60%, fully three-fifths of the population of the state of Arizona. There's very few counties like that that are just really contain the bulk of an entire state. And so that's why the Maricopa County Board is so important. And Gates, when he won his last term in 2020, he did so by just 1.5 percentage points. Now, redistricting has intervened since then, but the maps didn't change a lot. And Gates's seat actually voted for Biden 54 to 45. It's a nine point margin. So Democrats feel or should at least feel really good about their chances of picking up this seat in 2024. Republicans currently have a four to one majority on the board. The one Democratic seat is safely blue, but there's another 
Republican supervisor named Jack Sellers, who is definitely vulnerable in 24 as well. He only won by one tenth of 1% in 2020. His seat's a little bit less blue, but Biden still won it 51-48. And if Democrats retake the majority, as Quinn can say a lot more about, it'll be their first time in a really, really, really long time with a majority on the Maricopa board. But Quinn did some amazing sleuthing the other day, and there is this myth that he punctured that I I, I feel like I've said enough. Quinn, I I, I, I feel like you need to talk about the actual history of Maricopa County's board and the myth busting that you did. Yeah. So I'm always very interested whenever a journalist or somebody says something like Democrats have never won a majority on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. Um, And there's myths like that that exist all throughout Um, state politics. And it's very hard to do a lot of this research because we don't have a good historical database of things like this. It's very difficult to find election results. And so the idea that in the entire century and a half existence of Maricopa County, when Arizona was a territory and then as a state, the Democrats had never won a majority on the Board of Supervisors just sounded too bad or too good to be true. And so, indeed, multiple times when Arizona was a territory, Democrats won a majority and Democrats won a majority the first year of Arizona statehood. They repeatedly won majorities in the mid 20th century. You can go from the mid 40s at least until 1968 with victory after victory after victory after victory. This 2-1 majority persisting time and time and time and time and time and time again. And there's some variations here, like one of the Democrats, one of the Republicans formed a bipartisan governing majority. They were both backed by the same sort of good government group. But there's still this mathematical majority. So there's there's literally no version of Democrats have never won a majority that has any truth to it whatsoever. But indeed, in 1968, Democrats lost their majority for the first time in decades to Republicans. That same year, the Arizona legislature passed a piece of legislation that required that counties the size of Maricopa County expand to five supervisors. That basically allowed the new Republican majority to gerrymander itself into perpetual power. Um, and as far as my research uncovered, Republicans have held a 4-1 majority on the board since then. Uh, they drew a heavily Democratic district that has remained a heavily Democratic district the entire time. It's basically included... Uh, for the most part, most of the Hispanic voters in Maricopa County has been a heavily, reliably Democratic district. Um, and it's really only in you know the last 10 years or so that the surrounding areas, which have been very reliably Republican for a very, very long time, um, have started to trend blue, giving Democrats this opportunity. I mean, I, I think it's still safe to describe it probably as a, a light Republican gerrymander, even if it's it's weakened to some extent. I'm not sure that it's reached the point of becoming a dummy mander or anything like that. But you know, it, it given that Democrats have done well in Maricopa County the last several election cycles now, you'd expect a majority on the board well before 2024. But in any event, no, myth broken. Uh, Democrats have had a majority. They had a majority for decades. I love that. I love busting myths. And there are so many myths. I think Arizona is a state that just is rife with political myths that may not be uh, accurate. The hagiography that surrounded uh, John McCain for so long. And, um, you know, look, look, I, I, you know, why is it important for Democrats to control the Maricopa County? First of all, it's important because it would reflect the voters will and gerrymandering happens even at the local level. And we know 
One of the reasons there's always a tell. I think there's always a tell from Republicans when they're freaking out about something. And they have tried in the past several sessions of the legislature to try and split Maricopa into several counties. And that's always a tell to me. It hasn't worked. I mean, the Arizona legislature is so tightly controlled. Republicans control the Senate um, by a two-vote margin and the House by a two-vote margin. Fortunately, there's a Democratic governor. And again, the attorney general won by 280 votes, Chris Mays, in Arizona this past cycle. Arizona, it's such a battleground. And you know, <laughs> I just feel like we need to bust this myth once and for all. The way to bust it is for Democrats to win. And the race, um, the 2020 race, Jevin Hodge, who barely lost, barely lost, went on to run for Congress in 2022, barely lost again in that um, Arizona's first congressional district. Uh, so it does provide an opportunity to find some real talent when you have competitive races. And um, that's certainly one example of that. You know, the ultimate reason why I would say that Democrats winning control of Maricopa is so important is that because if Republicans continue to keep control, it won't be the same type of Republicans. The MAGA brigades are enraged at the GOP incumbents who are still on the board, and they're probably going to challenge them in primaries, and they'll probably win. And so the if a Republican replaces Bill Gates, then that Republican is probably going to be crazy. And we saw, guys, I'm sure you remember last fall when there was that dark red county in rural Arizona that refused to certify the results of the 2022 elections. It was actually kind of funny because by refusing to do so, they actually uh, increased Democratic margins because if you remove that county's vote, since it was so heavily red leaning, then uh, Democrats would actually have done better, including that uh, attorney general's race you were, you were just mentioning, Joe. But if Maricopa gets taken over by lunatics who refuse to certify election results, then who knows what the fuck will happen? So winning control of this board is crucial to election integrity for the state as a whole. Right. And that's Cochise County that you're talking about. And it was kind of wild to watch because, as you said, David, um, Republicans did it pretty well there. And, and it's interesting. I mentioned John McCain, who still lives, you know, the media is still so many of the political media still uh, remember so fondly driving around on his bus back in 2000 and that th he somehow defines Republicans in that state, which is not true. Couldn't be further for the truth. Look at the two top nominees, the governor, gubernatorial nominee, Carrie Lake, who fortunately lost, and Blake Masters, who was arguably one of the most extreme Republican candidates in 2022. And that's saying a lot. That's who the GOP is in Arizona these days. It is, it's not John McCain days are long gone. I think I think what you're forgetting when you say that Carrie Lake lost is that um, she's the, the fight is still going on. You know, she's still looking for her for her day in court to, to contest the election results. And it's a it's a big conspiracy, really. We just had a recent court um, hearing and she lost again. She's when I say she's lost, I should say she's lost repeatedly. Um, I think that would sum it up more. Um, Arizona, though, really a fascinating state. And, uh, you know, David Neer, you know, we've been 
doing this work for a long time. The fact that we're even talking about Arizona, because 10, 12 years ago, if you had wanted to talk about Arizona this way, people would have rolled their eyes. But I think events like passing SB 1070 back in 2010, it really mobilized a lot of um, young activists and they got they got out there, they registered voters, and they have helped change the politics of the state, the trajectory of the state. Quinn, I know you were being extremely sarcastic in mocking <laughs> Carrie Lake, but think about this. She considers herself to be the governor of Arizona, despite losing last year, I guess, governor in exile, but she's also probably going to run for the Senate. So would she be the first ever governor slash senator? <laughs> Who knows? We'll have to see in 2024. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's it, it raises some really interesting questions. You know, she might she might be the first person since Huey Long to have to you know delay her her swearing into the Senate uh, so that she can you know, <laughs> cue herself out as as governor. Who knows? Well, you know, we've got some other. Republican rising stars to talk about. I want to talk about Arkansas in just a few minutes, but let's just take a quick break here on the down ballot. We'll be back in just a few. Welcome back to the down ballot. My name is Joe Sudbay. I'm guest hosting today. And it's a really fun day for me because I actually get to ask a lot of questions. David Beer's out this week. And I am joined by David Neer, of course, the political editor of Daily Coast, and law professor Quinn Yergain. And right before the break, I mentioned we spent a lot of time talking about Arizona, but I wanted to head over to Arkansas, where there's another GOP rising star who is the governor currently. That is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the daughter of Mike Huckabee, the former governor, former presidential candidate, who if you've watched Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime about the Duggar family, you see him prominently featured many times. She also, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, was the White House press secretary under Donald Trump. As governor, she has no surprise, pushed a very extreme agenda. And one of the pieces of legislation that she was really excited about signing was an extremist education bill called the LEARNS Act. David Neer, tell us about the LEARNS Act and what it entails. Yeah, it's one of these far-right bills that basically tries to erase any discussion of racism in public schools. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders crowed about the bill saying, quote, all forms of racism and leftist indoctrination in our schools will be outlawed. But most notoriously, the bill prohibits any discussion of critical race theory, and it doesn't even define what critical race theory is. Now, of course, we know that critical race theory is an actually an academic framework that analyzes systemic racism, but conservatives just love to throw that term around to describe any discussion of racism that they don't like, which is every discussion of racism. And the Republicans dominate the legislature in Arkansas. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was a huge, huge proponent of this bill, rammed it right through. But there was one Republican legislator who actually voted against it. He's a former teacher himself, Jim Wooten. And he said of his colleagues, quote, I would say that 50% of them are trying to get close to the governor and the other 50% are afraid of her. So basically, this Learns Act passed due to a combination of sycophancy and fear. It's truly pathetic. The bill has actually been put on hold 
by a state court judge, but there is a group of activists that is working to permanently repeal the legislation. And in fact, there is actually a way to do this in Arkansas, which is really very interesting. And Quinn, since you are the unquestioned expert on this aspect of state politics, I'd like to turn it over to you to fill us in on what's going on here with this repeal effort. Yeah. So oftentimes when we think about things like direct democracy, we talk about people who have written a law or have written a constitutional amendment themselves and are gathering signatures to put it on the ballot and they're enacting it. And we frequently talk about, you know, a lot of efforts on the right to crack down on on uh, initiatives like that. But a very important piece of the direct democracy powers that voters have and have had for a very long time in many states is the referendum that allows, in at least some cases, voters to take a law that was passed by the legislature, gather signatures, and put the law on the ballot. And if it does not receive majority support, that is to say, if a majority votes against it, the law is repealed. And there's a really long history of this being done in Arkansas. Um, Arkansas has, unlike a lot of other Southern states, a really robust history of direct democracy. And enough voters are, are working to gather signatures to put this law on the ballot um, as a referendum measure. But there's a lot of bureaucracy that has to happen in order for that to actually manifest. And we see you know, this happening in a lot of Republican-controlled states around the country where voters submit petitions or they're trying to put something on the ballot and the people who are in charge of certifying it for the ballot do so in a way that is inaccurate or misleading or takes away the point or just delays, 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 delays. And, you know, who am I to characterize anybody's actions in this respect? But it sure seems like the Attorney General of Arkansas is delaying because only recently has the language actually been accepted, which gives voters about two months to gather 54,000 signatures. That's doable, certainly. Not necessarily easy to do in that, in that period of time, but that's the challenge that voters have in this moment. Um, if they want to put it on the ballot, they have this not Herculean task, but significant task of gathering a large number of, of signatures from uh, all over the state to do so. Quinn, you actually wrote about efforts to make it harder unconstitutionally um, to get access to dem direct democracy in Arkansas. You wrote it at your Substack Guaranteed Republic, which is another must read. And uh, it, it's really one of these things that um, you can see the Republicans in the legislature, and they tried it last year. They tried to uh, increase the limit, um, the, the threshold to 60%, which was had to go to the ballot and was rejected 59 to 41, which is a pretty strong margin in Arkansas uh, in support, I think, of direct democracy. What is this latest attempt that Arkansas Republicans have tried to institute to really limit access to, to this whole process? So in any state that has a long and robust history of direct democracy, there's almost always a short and very fractured history of trying to crack down on that direct democracy. Um, and indeed, uh, politicians have been opposed to direct democracy for a really, 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 really long time. Um, and so in Arkansas, when Republicans got the majority of the Arkansas legislature last decade, they recognized that Arkansas voters have used the initiative process to put a lot of things on the ballot, a lot of which they have ultimately chosen to adopt. Legalizing medical cannabis, raising minimum wage. There have been effort. There was an effort in 2020 to put a top four primary on the ballot like they have in Alaska, but it was kicked off the ballot for technical reasons. This is a process that's being used robustly by Arkansas citizens. And 
recently Republicans put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would raise the geographic distribution requirement. That is to say, if you're gathering signatures, most states in the country require that they come from a certain number of counties, a certain number of Senate districts or congressional districts or something like that um, to ensure that there is some adequate distribution of signatures. And in Arkansas, under the Constitution, it says that you have to gather signatures from at least 15 counties of the state. And in 2020, they proposed a constitutional amendment that would require that voters gather signatures from three fifths of all of the counties rather than just that 15. This was rejected, but not to be deterred by the rejection of that constitutional amendment. uh, They turned right around this year and enacted a statute that requires that uh, signatures be gathered from uh, 50 counties out of 75. And that's a pretty significant increase. It's what was rejected by voters uh, just two years ago. And in doing so, it, there's a pretty obvious argument that they're violating what the Constitution says. The only thing that the Constitution says about the distribution is that voters have to submit signatures from at least 15 of the counties of the state. And the Arkansas legislators pointed at that and said, look, it says at least 15 counties, at least We can legislate beyond that. We can impose this requirement that goes above and beyond that. And the logical response to that is, well, if you're so convinced that that is the truth, then why did you propose a constitutional amendment just a few years ago that would have raised that threshold? If you believed you could do this statutorily, why why try to do it constitutionally? It doesn't make any sense. It's It's an effort to put something on the ballot. And voters already indicated that they don't want this. And, you know, the the Arkansas Constitution also says rather clearly, no law shall be passed in any manner interfering with the freedom of the people in procuring petitions. There is a strong argument here that this is unconstitutional under the Arkansas Constitution. And it is under it's facing a lawsuit arguing that it's unconstitutional right now. And the defense of the state just seems to be the Constitution says at least End of end of argument, really. I mean, they're they're not really saying much more than that. That I find that so freaking absurd because it's so obvious that what the state constitution means is that it's okay if you submit from sixteen or seventy four or seventy five. It 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 doesn't mean that the constitution is setting some kind of floor that the legislature could just dicker with uh, whenever it wants to. And and like you said, Quinn. I, it just feels like they have such unclean hands here. Why on earth did they try that constitutional amendment if they thought they could just magic it away with a simple statute and and, and not go through the whole ordeal of having it fail by double digits? The whole thing seems ridiculous. But obviously, this is going to wind up before the Arkansas Supreme Court eventually. Do we have any hope there? Honestly, yes. I mean, I, I what I would say is, you know, what you see sometimes in states all around the country is you see Republican legislatures imposing limits like this on direct democracy. And you see state courts, regardless of the state, sometimes stepping in to say, no, that's unconstitutional under the state constitution. In Idaho, for example, just a few years ago, uh, the legislature had dramatically raised the threshold for um, initiated statutes. And in Idaho, they've done fantastic things with the initiative process. It always, you know, to the the chagrin of the legislature and the governor. And so logically, it made sense to make it harder to do that. But the Idaho Supreme Court, which has had a Republican majority for a very long time, stepped in to say, no, voters have a fundamental right under the state constitution to propose initiatives. And we are going to evaluate any efforts by the legislature to limit that. We're going to be really skeptical of that. Now, 
I don't, I'm not sure that anybody would have necessarily expected that from the Idaho Supreme Court in that case, but that was a really bold, assertive, and honestly, I think brave opinion to, to deliver and to hand down with a really strong rationale. The Arkansas Supreme Court, I don't think is as, I don't know, uh, renegade, a moderate, um, whatever, whatever word we would like as the Idaho Supreme Court, perhaps. But I do think that there is hope in, under the Arkansas Supreme Court. It has been willing to strike down things that the legislature has done. It is textual. It is extremely textualist. But fortunately for the plaintiffs in this case, the text of the Arkansas Constitution happens to be on their side. Reading things in context, you know, this is what we're, we're all textualists now. Reading things in context, in order, understanding what things are referring to, that's where we are at this point in our history. The text is clear. So I think that there is there's hope in the first place, but there's also a ridiculously strong textualist argument here. And, you know, if this measure qualifies for the ballot, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when it actually goes before voters in November of 2024. You know, Joe, I, I, I got to imagine that an organization like this that's been set up to oppose this measure, it's called Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students. They call themselves Arkansas Capes. That they're not going to pursue an effort like this unless they have polling or other data that makes them believe that they can actually be successful. And I think this just really flies in the face of what you would expect the sort of DC pundit conventional wisdom to be, right? Because they think, oh, well, sure, critical race theory, you know, that that, that attacks on that will be popular with Arkansas voters. But obviously, Arkansas capes thinks otherwise. Yeah. You know, um, David, going to that, it, it, this whole CRT thing started with the Glenn Youngkin campaign, if you remember back in 2021 when he ran for governor. And he was treated as a moderate by the DC kind of punditry and political crowd. And everyone else was like, ask him to explain it, ask him to define, ask him to talk about what CRT is. And the thing is, they're talking to their base with CRT, you know, because there's, when they, when they hear the word CRT, they know it's race, race. They know it's race. And that is what they feed to their base. But I agree with you. You know, when you want to talk about education and getting kids educated. Arkansas has a history of being on the front lines of the civil rights movement. You're telling people they can't educate their kids about what happened in Little Rock. That's what it really comes down to. That's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed into law in which and what we're trying to get overturned in that state. It's really going to be fascinating to see. And but one of the other things I think that's real important is so often on these ballot measures. And I let's go back to Kansas in the summer of 2022. It was almost a foregone conclusion among the Beltway intelligentsia, such as they are, that there was no way an abortion um, referendum uh, would pass on our side in Kansas in August of 2022. It was just you know, it was just a foregone conclusion. There was some polling that showed it close. It wasn't even really that much polling because the polling firms didn't even, and the, and the networks didn't even do it because they didn't think it would matter. And what happened? 60-40. When people get the chance to vote, 
it's really different. It, it, not for a candidate, because as you know, as you know, a lot of people vote the same party, and that's become increasingly true. But on specific issues, I mean, Medicare expansion has passed on the ballot in red states. Marijuana legalization, increasing the minimum wage, got over 60% increasing the minimum wage in Florida in 2020. So I think it's a far different ballgame. And I don't think that everybody who doesn't pay attention to states, which is a lot of <laughs> a lot of the punditry crowd and what happens in states in these ballot measures um, misses it. Yeah, I, it's it's always I think that you're quite right that that when we talk about CRT, we're talking about Republicans playing to the base. Um, and I, I have two immediate reactions to that. One of them is I'm I'm reminded of how Lee Atwater talked about the Southern strategy. Um, that we're not saying the N-word anymore. We're we're talking about states' rights. We're talking about things like that. And we're using this kind of coded language. We say CRT, you know, it, it's very, very similar in that sense that you're, you're evoking this idea in people's minds and you're speaking in this coded way. The second thing, though, is that I think that it's a less obvious message in many ways. I mean, one of the one of the things that I think is really striking when you listen to someone like Ron DeSantis talk is just how how perpetually like capital O online he is. Mm -hmm. Like it's not something that resonates with people when when you talk in this weird jargon that just sounds like it's pulled from, you know, some 4chan thread or something when we're talking about cultural Marxism and stuff like that. Like I I don't think that the vast majority of Republican voters in this country really have any earthly idea what people are talking about when they say stuff like this. And I think that in the context of Arkansas, there is a unique opportunity for something like this to just be framed as this is an attack on teachers. It's an attack on public schools. It's an attack on your kid's school and what they can read in their library. That's that's a winning message if it's able to be pitched that way. I mean, obviously, there's an incentive to go in and nationalize something like this. But I think that this is one of these things where I think that the vast majority of people probably recognize that we need to be honest about history. I don't think there's anything really in polling that indicates that people don't think that we should teach things like slavery in schools, that we shouldn't teach about the civil rights movement in schools, that we shouldn't just teach this whitewashed, sanitized version of Rosa Parks in schools. I'm not even confident that if you nationalize it in this way, that it's it's really going to be a loss for Arkansas Capes in this situation. I mean, it, it strikes me that they're probably in a good position here. I mean, we'll, we'll certainly see, but I, I really don't think that this is something that really sticks with the vast majority of the Republican base. The very capital O online base, absolutely. But outside of that, I I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see. You know, Quinn, you talked about attacks on public schools. There's a whole other aspect of this piece of legislation that we didn't even mention, which is that it also provides vouchers for students to attend private schools or get homeschooled. And we know what that is. It's an attack on the entire public school system, the entire idea of public education. It's basically a giveaway to wealthy parents who already would probably be sending their kids to private schools anyway. It's yet another attack on teachers unions, which are just about in, in, in many Southern states, some of the last strong unions left. And I think that that kind of deep attack on the very idea of public schooling is probably a key issue that's motivating the opposition to this bill. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that be in the forefront of the messaging as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know, it's been interesting because vouchers have been front and center with it's been a real Republican agenda item. And uh, in Iowa, uh, vouchers bill passed pushed by Governor Kim Reynolds. But in states like Georgia and Texas, it has been rural 
Republicans who have fought against those. We're Republicans in the legislatures who have fought against those measures because they think it hurts public schools. And those are that's something they're very proud of in their communities. So I do think that that, uh, David, is another really important issue. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation about Arkansas. So much so much at stake there. And um, we will see how it plays out both in the courts and in the court of public opinion and with the voters over the next few months. Let's take another break here on the down ballot. And we come back. I want to talk about some developments in Michigan. We'll be back. All right. Welcome back to the down ballot, I want to dive into a development that happened this week in the Michigan House of Representatives, Michigan, of course, where the Democrats took control of the House and the Senate. We are seeing great progress. But something really interesting, the Democrats in the House passed the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, NPVIC. David Neer, what is the NPVIC? Why should we know about it? And why is it important that Michigan is moving in that direction? Yeah. So the first thing is, let's get rid of the acronym. Let's just talk about <laughs> what, what, what this is. And so the compact is an agreement between states. And the Constitution allows for states to make all sorts of agreements with one another. And what this particular one would do is that all member states would agree to give their electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And the key thing is that the compact would not come into force until enough members join such that they would constitute a majority of the electoral college, which right now stands at 270 votes. So once enough states with 270 electoral votes join, then this compact says that after a presidential election, all of those states will collectively award their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. So whether other states don't join the compact, it ultimately doesn't matter that you would then transform the election into one decided by the national popular vote, which of course is what we should be doing anyway, because it's really what just about any normal democracy does. Obviously, we've had two elections in our lifetimes where Republican candidates have won the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote. It's a terrible outcome for democracy. Of course, Republicans love the system and they would have no interest in amending the Constitution to abolish it. So this organization sprung up many years ago with this extremely clever idea to really find a different way around the problem of the, of the Electoral College. And the Constitution doesn't preclude states from handing out their Electoral College votes as they see fit. So that's the, the background here. Right now, there are 17 members of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and they together have 205 Electoral College votes. Michigan, Joe, which you just mentioned, a committee in the state house just advanced the bill to have the state join the compact. That would add Michigan's 15 electoral votes to the compact, taking the compact up to 220 votes. Now, Republicans typically oppose joining the compact. They did so here. It was a party line vote. But I think we can almost certainly expect that Democrats will pass it before the full House, that the Senate will pass it, that Governor Gretchen Whitmer will sign it. It's unli unlikely that they would have taken up this bill had there not been widespread support among Democrats for it already. So then from there, the real issue is, 
Can we get to 270 and by when? So that, of course, will be a challenge. You mentioned uh, other states have done it. Minnesota passed it this year, of course, because Minnesota now has control of the House, Senate, and the governor's office. Nevada's interesting because they now have a Republican governor, but they're trying a different way to get into the compact. Uh, David, tell us what's going on in Nevada, because it kind of fits with the conversation we were just having about direct democracy. Yeah, so in Nevada... We lost the governorship, of course, last November. And so Joe Lombardo, Republican, is now the governor. But Democrats have a very strong grip on the legislature there. And so they know that Lombardo would veto a bill to join the compact. In fact, to his great shame, uh, the guy Lombardo beat, Steve Sisolak, vetoed a bill to join the compact a few years ago. But Nevada Democrats in the legislature really want to join the compact. And so they have decided to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would ultimately go before voters. The thing is, it's a bit tricky to get an amendment on the ballot in Nevada, even for members of the legislature. They have to pass it twice within an election intervening in between. I guess the theory behind this kind of rule is giving voters a chance to weigh in on the fate of state lawmakers who may perhaps be in the middle of doing something really unpopular. And so, you know, if the legis- control of the legislature changes hands, then those plans get derailed. In any event, I'd say it's quite unlikely that Republicans will gain control of the legislature in 2024. So Nevada Democrats, they pass the amendment once, they have to pass it again after 2024, and then it can go before voters in 2026. So that's a bit of a longer term play, but really that's in keeping with everything else. There is, I would say, zero chance of the compact coming into play for 2024. I think that's inarguable, but there is a chance by 2028. So Nevada is moving forward on a timeline that if Democrats have success in other states would allow the compact to potentially take effect by 28. Well, I do want to get into, um, you know, when you are mucking around like this, and that's not the right term, but when you're, you know, there's obviously going to be legal challenges. And I want to hear from Quinn on that. But before we get there, David, what are the other states? How do we get to 270? So right now, Joe, your home state of Maine is the other blue state where the compact also failed in recent years. It came up for a vote in the legislature and it did not succeed. So activists there are, my understanding is trying another push and hoping that they'll meet with a different result this time. And that would add means for electoral college votes to the compact. After that, then there's five more states that currently have mixed control or Republican control where Democrats actually have a chance of regaining power or taking control of all of state government and thereby being able to pass the compact. So at the top of the list are Arizona, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, and Wisconsin is also more of a long shot possibility. I think you know, we should probably devote a future episode to talking about each of these states because they're also interesting. We already talked a lot about Arizona in this episode and the path for Democrats to gaining control in each state varies in each one. And there's different time horizons. Some of them require only one election. Virginia, for instance, would require at least two elections, but we'll dive into them in a future episode. Mark my words, book it, put it on the calendar now, but there really is a path. And the path is closer now than it was when we 
really last dug into this a few years ago. You know, Democrats flipped the Pennsylvania House. They flipped the Arizona governorship. So I really do think that this is potentially within view. But Joe, like you said, there are going to be legal challenges for sure. And there's also a question as to whether Congress needs to give its approval to this compact. And so even if all the pieces fall into place before 2028, it's very possible that we get derailed somehow. Well, fortunately, David Neer, we have one of the smartest legal minds we know uh, joining with us today. Uh, Quinn, what are your thoughts on the legal hurdles that would be in the way of actually in, in, in getting the compact to work? I think in, in many ways I'm, I'm blessed uh, to, to talk about this because I, I feel like I'm relatively agnostic on a lot of the, the core legal questions here. Some scholars feel very strongly about this in a number of different directions. The, the reason that there is a, a potential problem is that there's the compact clause in the U.S. Constitution, um, which says that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, dot, 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 enter into any agreement or compact with another state. Um, and so there have been people who've argued that Congress needs to give its consent for this um, national popular vote interstate compact. It's a compact. It has the word compact in the title. And there's other people who argue that, no, this isn't a compact, um, despite the fact that it, it has it in its title. It's not the kind of compact that the Constitution is contemplating when it's talking about this. So we don't need to worry about congressional approval. There's other people who argue that even if this is a compact and even if Congress gives its approval, uh, Congress does not have the power to give its approval for this kind of compact because this exceeds the power that Congress has. And my takeaway from all of this is who knows? Um, people can pontificate on this from their ivory towers. But from my second story vantage point, I will just say that I, it'll obviously go to the Supreme Court if it ever happens. I think whether it affects the actual outcome of a presidential election or not, because it will determine how electoral votes are allocated. And I think that, and this is not to splash cold water on this at all, because I'm, I'm a supporter of this effort, but it does raise a lot of sort of follow-up interesting questions. You know, we, we talked a lot before 2022 about different efforts by 2020 truthers to disrupt the normal election process. Creating a process where the national popular vote determines the winners creates some incentive in every precinct in the country for this sort of, you know, nasty behavior to take place. I think that one of the potential problems is that it, it will really will test our election infrastructure in a way that it hasn't really been tested since, I, I don't know, 1876 in many ways. It, it is uh, uh, an interesting sort of challenge that I think if we if we ever end up having this, we're going to have to figure out. It's it's one of the, the many reasons that having this kind of deeply delegated to the locals election administration is not always ideal from just a practical administrative standpoint. It, it, it certainly does obviously present all kinds of challenges. And the one challenge I think it comes back to something I rant about all the time is the importance of state legislatures and winning back state legislatures. And, you know, Arizona is so close and the New Hampshire House, may, you know, with its 400 members is so close. It really matters because it has an upstream effect. And this is, you know, as you said, David Neer, in our lifetime, we've seen two Republican presidents win who lost the popular vote, that's not the way democracy should work. And this is, I think, one of those really great efforts to try and get democracy headed in the right direction. Um, anyways, that was but just a fascinating conversation and something that, you know, is so much more real than we ever would have thought of just a couple of years ago. 
You know, Quinn, I agree that there are a lot of hurdles, even if this does come into effect. But my father, he was, <laughs> he could be a pain in the ass, but he had one good piece of advice. And he would always say, let them tell you no. And what he meant by that was, don't tell yourself no. Don't decide in advance that it's going to fail or that it's not going to work or that it's not worth trying. If someone comes along later and says, nope, you're not allowed. Nope, you can't do that. Okay, fine. Then you get a chance to make your case to the voters in a different way in the future. And whatever obstacles the compact faces, I think it is extremely worth pursuing. And even if the Supreme Court or Congress winds up being an insurmountable obstacle, then we just have to try to achieve an actual national popular vote in a different way. And I'm here for it. I I think that, you know, one of the one of the things that I, you know, certainly find frustrating in, in conversations like this is if the Supreme Court were to strike this down, I don't see that in any way as um, something that is irreparably harmful in any way. You know, if the Supreme Court wants to step in and make it really, 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 really clear that it's not interested in any form of popular sovereignty, if it wants to further degrade its perception in the public's eye, they're welcome to do that. I would rather have a national popular vote than not. But if we're not going to have one, I'd rather the court tarnish its reputation in getting us there. Really great point. Really great point. What a great conversation today. I just have to say thank you, um, Quinn and David Neeran. I'm just so honored to be part of it. Well, it was really great to be here. Always happy to, to talk about extremely specific historical things and always a, always a pleasure to be here. Well, Joe and Quinn, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed having this conversation. We have been talking with, or really guest hosted by Joe Sudbay. You can find him on Twitter, at Joe Sudbay. And we've also been talking with Quinn Yergain. You can find him on Twitter, at Yergain, Y-E-A-R-G-A-I-N. They are both excellent follows. You can also find Quinn at his Substack, Guaranteed Republics, another must read. It has been a fantastic show on the down ballot. Joe and Quinn, thank you again so much. Also, thank you to our producer, Walter Einenkel, and our editor, Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Mm-hmm.